Earlier this month, Israel's spy agency, Mossad, made an explosive announcement that they'd worked in conjunction with Brazilian police to foil a Hezbollah terror plot. Soon after this, the Brazilian police made the unusual move of telling the Israelis to fuck off and stated that the plot they had foiled had no involvement with international events. While many laughed, others brought up the 1994 AMIA bombing in Buenos Aires, Argentina, as proof that there must be something to Israel's accusations. Being an Amerifat who lost his ability to consistently read and comprehend Spanish due to my past membership at a kickboxing gym where sparring happened four days a week, I can't claim to have ever read a ton about the AMIA attack, only surface-level things like the suicide of Special Prosecutor Alberto Nisman, the claims of Hezbollah slash Iranian involvement, and the way that this alleged involvement has been used by American neoconservatives to point to a broader Iranian operation in Latin America. But luckily for all of us, we're joined today by this show's first ever Jewish Latino guest, Twitter's and Substacks I Write for Jacobin, who also happens to have written an excellent three-part series on the bombing and the uh, tangled mess that uh, has since followed. How are you doing today, Steph? I'm good. So um, just for our, our, our listeners who are not super familiar with the attacks and uh, in general not super familiar with uh, Argentinian history in the 20th century, could you give some context for what it was like for the Jewish community in Argentina, both during the dictatorship and uh, sort of right before the bombing? So during the dictatorship, the dictatorship's repression was primarily directed against the left and specifically against the Peronist left and the Marxist left. And I don't, you know, to some extent, the disproportionate number of Jews who were targeted or tortured um, were, you know, was, of course, a result of just disproportionate Jewish representation and left-wing movements in general. But according to Jacobo Timmerman and um, who's a, a wrote a famous book about his experiences under torture during the dictatorship, um, there was a specific question that Jewish, um, like, leftist detainees would be asked frequently, which was about information for some about something called La Plan Andinia, the Andinia Plan. Um, Andinia Plan, this will this comes up in later in strange revelations about the AMIA bombing, but um it's essentially a conspiracy based on when Theodore Herzl wanted to create Israel and in, in Argentina that states that uh, there's sort of a joint Zionist left-wing conspiracy to take Patagonia from Argentina and Chile and create a second Israel there. So in the dictatorship era, this was like, oh, Soviet troops, Soviet and Israeli troops are going to land any day now. Like we have to, you know, this is like an urgent real national security threat. It persisted into democracy, but, you know, that's like a deeply sort of deeply bizarre um, aspect of anti-Semitism in the Argentine dictatorship that I don't think like a lot of people realize is that like, yes, it was also that they were sort of Catholic, hardcore Catholic, anti-communist. But there was there was sort of like a sp- very specific belief there, however strange it was. Yeah, no, that that kind of struck me in some of the materials you sent me, how um, little like um, anti-Semitism in Argentina was discussed just in, in the context of the bombing at large. I thought that was a pretty stark omission in uh at least American sources about this. Yeah. I mean, just to say something in connection with that, you know, Argentina, I I mean, this is not something we, we can get into here, but you know, 
Peron allowed these various, like, World War II war criminals to take refuge in Argentina. Um, and so there's this, you know, Americans don't really know who Peron was or what Peronism is, and it, it's hard to explain. But um, Peron was all, also got on pretty well with the Jewish community in Argentina. Um, it's part of his, like, general, like, schizophrenic sort of outlook on everything. Whereas, like, the anti-Peronist right is where anti-Semitism historically comes from in Argentina, not even under the dictatorship, but like prior to Peron, when like the first sort of progressive movement in Argentine national history, um, UCR, the Radical Civic Union, was in power briefly. Like a lot of the elite reaction against those governments involved like attacks on synagogues and, and so on, just because. So, you know, I don't know, again... All of the people who who did that stuff, like all of their descendants, love Israel now. Um, and Israel armed the Argentine dictatorship, of course, famously. But that is sort of, to me, that's sort of the really relevant legacy of anti-Semitism in Argentina, more than like Peron's like weird little retirement home for Nazis. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, you, you've written a lot about how muddled the investigation has been, but to the best of your abilities... Could you give what is the consensus best recounting of events of the actual attack? So on July 18th, 1994, um, the AMIA, which stands for, is the main building of um, Asociación Mutual Israeli Argentina, which is like the Argentine-Israelite Mutual Association. It's like a Jewish community group. Exploded, 85 people were killed. Um, the what happened has never been conclusively proven, but the has never like literally has not been proven like it's a cold case. But um, the consensus narrative in in both like North American and in Argentine society and media is that this was a Hezbollah suicide bombing, which there are a number of problems with. I think also important to note is that um the AMIA bombing happened two years after the bombing of the Israeli embassy in, in Buenos Aires, um, which killed fewer people and, like, is sort of more, dis I feel like people are more dismissive towards just because it's like, oh, well, the Hezbollah explanation kind of makes sense there. Like, that's like an Israeli political target. But that event is also, like, deeply odd. And I personally don't believe that Hezbollah or Iran was responsible for it. But regardless, it, it there's there's a lot of unanswered questions around that too. And it sort of kicked off the whole processes that the AMIA would then really hit, kick into overdrive. Yeah, that that is the thing that I, you know, have repeatedly run into uh, in my limited reading of this. Like, just how weird it would be for Hezbollah to seemingly, like, at random select Argentina. And how how convoluted... You know, like, uh, uh, on the other hand, how convoluted, like, a false flag attack would be. Could you talk a little bit about um, the immediate aftermath of the bombing and sort of the uh, the U.S.'s role through the FBI in uh, pushing the Iran theory forward? Yeah, so in the immediate aftermath of the bombing, a couple of things happened. One to note um, that's recorded in... Gabriel Levinas's great book, La Ley Bajo los Escombros, The Law Under the Rubble, is um, a reporter for Radio Mitre, which is like a major, or at least at the time was a major Argentine radio station, is live on air 
like right after the bombing happens, like as the police are supposed to be pulling people out from under the rubble. And he sees a group of men affiliated either with the federal police or with CIDA, the intelligence agency, like picking up, like carrying out, carrying around a bunch of auto parts and interviews them live on air. And they're like, oh, these are parts, you know, these are parts of the suicide van that we just like already found at the scene. Like as, as, as like people are, as like rescue efforts are going on, like before the investigation is even started. And that sort of tracks into, um, you know, what happens further and further on. So like, whatever you make of this, an Israeli forensic team is immediately flown in to, to examine the AMIA. This, I mean, to be, to be, you know, to be sure this probably has partially to do with the fact that like the Argentine police, especially the Buenos Aires municipal police were just like not very experienced in these types of things, but um, it's still odd. Then there's, there's a couple of teams from the U.S. There's FBI, which is sort of consistently involved in the later investigation. And then there's also an ATF team. Um, the ATF team is notable only because I think his name is Charles Hunter, the chief ATF investigator, is skeptical of the suicide bomb version. And I'm not a, I'm not an explosives expert, but his, his reasoning is like none of the surrounding buildings were damaged. None of the surrounding buildings had their windows blown out like this seems like an explosion that came from within the building. There are other reasons to be suspicious of, of, of this suicide bomb version of events. But in any case, that is the version of events that eventually sort of everyone runs with and that, um, you know, conditions Nisman's investigation. And before that, the investigations as to in attempts to prove like there was a there wasn't there was a bomb explo- explosion from a vehicle that drove into the building and it you know and we, the driver was a member of Hezbollah or affiliated to Iran or, or Lebanese or what have you. Yeah, I noticed that um, a lot of I mean it's already just like very thin evidence if you could call it that for Iranian involvement. Um, the we'll we'll link to the uh, three part series that you wrote. But uh, in that, you talk about how a lot of the evidence for Hezbollah or Iranian links is in like sort of very bad early 90s phone analysis. Like, uh, I forget what the exact like intelligence term for it is, but just like connecting phones, basically. And yeah. they there's one suspect that they think that they uh, fingered at one point who um, Mohsen Rabani who like you note also uh had died months before this attack uh but they basically pinned it on him in preliminary investigations by uh pointing out that like a phone call made in the area of Buenos Aires that he lived in called the van company that supplied the van purportedly used in the attack yeah so there's sort of three different incarnations of the Iran guilt theory um and we'll go through each of those, but um, just maybe to preface the, this is all the brain, ch- like you mentioned the United States' role in sort of pushing this narrative and Israel's role in pushing this narrative. And of course, like they were the beneficiaries, but as we saw by sort of how clumsy the, um, the, the like Brazil thing was, whoever's in charge of Israel's Latin America, the Mossad's Latin America desk, or in charge of the FBI's, like, you know, there's definitely Hezbollah in Latin America desk is like, uh, is essentially like Cersei Lannister with that once um, Tywin dies. 
Um, and the Tywin in this case is a man with the most guess who ass super spy alias of all time called Aldo Style, um, whose real name, who will later be known as Jaime Stuso, and whose real name is um, Antonio Horacio Stuso, who um, not only spends his entire career, but his entire adult life pretty much um, as a like the sort of power behind the throne of of La Cida, the Argentine like foreign intelligence agency. So you know, like for instance, when the Israeli embassy bombing first happens, um, Stuso's man in Tel Aviv, this guy named Patricio Finan, like goes to Mossad and is like, Sidek can prove that there was a suicide bomb, and you should like run this through us. You should give all your resources to us. Like you know, we're your guys on the ground in Argentina. Like. Um, and that's sort of the beginning of a very fruitful relationship for Stuso and Sida with the U.S. and Israel and with various European intelligence agencies, which um, goes great until it doesn't in 2014. All right. Uh, so now that you've sort of uh, established Stuso, um, could you give uh, our listeners a brief tour into the personal and political life of a man who uh, whose career Stuso uh, patronized, um, Alberto Nisman? The prosecutor. Yeah, so Nisman is like Stuso's pawn, or Stuso is Nisman's like daddy. I don't know how else to really put it. Um, and there's, you know, there's consciousness of this in Argentina. There's like, you know, there's also stuff that you'll see like if you search like, you know, Nisman Sionismo or Nisman Mossad or something, Nisman CIA on Twitter, there'll be people who are like, oh, Nisman was like a Mossad agent and he, you know, he was working for American imperialism. But Nisman was like a pawn in the game of of Jaime Stuso. And basically Nisman's he's a he's a he starts out as a young lawyer. Um, there's some odd stuff in his early career, like he barely escapes being prosecuted for making obscene phone calls, like very obscene phone calls to one of his female colleagues. Um, and then he becomes head of the AMIA investigation eventually and his entire rest of his career will, and his life really will center on this. So he becomes a very prestigious person who receives all of his information that he uses in the investigation um, through Stuso. And he also gets like personal benefit, a lot of personal benefits out of this relationship. So like one of Stuso's biggest assets um, in sort of marketing himself politically um, or making himself indispensable to politicians in democratic Argentina was his network in the court system um, so Stuso gets Nisman's wife appointed to a federal judgeship that she's like, you know, not even in the running for. And Nisman becomes Nisman becomes quite wealthy. Um, he travels and sort of is prestigious internationally. Like there's various videos you can find on YouTube of him speaking to um, Foundation for Defense of Democracies in particular. He does speak through a translator. But yeah, and... There's a lot, a lot, a lot of weirdness around Nisman's finances that um, we'll, pro- we'll probably ultimately never know the answer to. Um, like he had a secret, as was revealed immediately after his death, he had a secret bank account in the U.S., which was receiving, you know, $10,000, $15,000 deposits, you know, pretty regularly from unknown individuals. His IT guy, Diego Lago Marcino, gave Nisman half his salary at the end of every month who will also be a suspect in Nisman's death. So there's a, you know, he's a, he's sort of like, you know, the way I think of Nisman is he's sort of like a sort of playboy lawyer type who's like, mm-hmm. you know, he, yeah, he's Jewish and he, you know, he comes from, you know, 
a pro-Israel background as as I do and as all Argentine Jews do. But but like he's really a pawn in the game of someone who's not Jewish and you know sort of a subcontractor for Mossad and the CIA. So um, let's let's establish the timeline for uh, sort of right, right before uh, Nisman kills himself and then does. So what happened with uh, Stiuso, uh, Christina Kirchner, and then um, Nisman's investigation? Because it, it, he, uh, you characterize his ultimate uh, set of accusations as sort of like a, a desperate move to save this very lucrative career that he's he's made for himself. Yeah. Um. So now would probably be. Now we could probably get into like the three different incarnations of the the Amia Hezbollah guilt theory. So the first one is, as you said, see them makes a series of does this really dubious like phone link analysis um, connecting like someone in Buenos Aires called someone in in Paraguay who called someone in Lebanon who was who, who was you know we think was involved with Hezbollah. James Bernazani, the FBI liaison to Cida, who you know is fully invested in proving the Iran theory famously said that this is like dangerous and you could link his phone to Osama bin Laden's with this methodology. But yeah, so see that, see that makes a series of, of claims centered around, around that. And then a lot of the specific individuals who are calling on each end are sort of murky, but one is, as you said, um, Mohsen Rabani, the cultural attache to the Iranian embassy in Argentina, who purchased a white Renault traffic van several months before the attack. And because it's alleged that a white Renault traffic van was the suicide van is like, Oh, he purchased this, you know, he purchased this on behalf of the attack. Like the Iranian embassy was involved in planning the attack. And, you know, the phone, the phone stuff on Rabani's end is especially, you know, like murky, like see that alleges that like a call was made to a Hezbollah linked number or a call was linked to a number that called a Hezbollah linked number from like r- near Rabani's rental apartment. Which, like, yeah. The other thing that Sita does in this first phase is arrest a man named Carlos Deshadin, who's a very weird guy. He's a used car salesman, wheeler dealer, um, Lebanese-Argentine man who um, has connections to different, like, low-level corrupt Buenosidic cops. And his his wife is, like, a, a prostitute. There's there's some kind of, like, sex work linkage to this that I haven't entirely, is not entirely clear to me, but... They arrest Deshadin, and this begins like a whole, like really horrendous legal odyssey for him, where for years he's being hounded through the courts, and ultimately he's completely exonerated of everything. But one thing that's interesting about that is that, like, when he's first arrested, a CIA agent comes to him and is like, "We're going to give you four hundred thousand bucks if you like say the names of the Hezbollah operatives who who committed the attack." Which, of course, you know, even if that was the suicide van, like Deshadin just sold it used car like he he you know so of course he couldn't do that and he sort of gets pursued um through the courts um you mentioned the the name of the suspect rabani is suspected rabani is still alive he he's he's can't leave iran um for somewhat obvious reasons but the actual name of the suspect is a guy named ibrahim hussein barrow the alleged suicide bomber so um we could get into like the second this is like this already into the second incarnation of like the, the Amia Hezbollah thesis. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Run through all of them. Yeah. So Nisman claims in the early two thousands that, um, 
that this Hezbollah, like this driver who defected, this Hezbollah defector who was like a driver for Nasrallah or for Imad Mugnia or, or someone, um, identified the suicide, identified Hezbollah's guilt in the attack and identified the suicide bomber as someone whose last name was like Brew or Barrow. And so Nisman alleges that this was a man named Ibrahim Hussein Barrow, who whose funeral in Lebanon was attended by high-ranking Hezbollah, like, figures. I'm not sure if it was Nasrallah himself or, or Munier or, like, someone else whose name I don't know. But the prime, the primary guilt, like, the primary evidence of guilt against, against um, Barrow is that, you know, well, these guys wouldn't have come to his funeral unless he, you know, carried out some important, you know, mission for, for Hezbollah. Yeah, so then Nisman and Stuso... Um, locate brothers barrow's brothers who are in detroit um which is a very i I find the image of them heading to detroit together very funny but um (laughs) they they take dna samples from the brothers the dna samples are never tested supposedly they're eventually lost so there's ultimately this you know the barrow thing is sort of you know, again, this is now the official story, but it sort of goes nowhere. The third incarnation of the Amia Hezbollah guilt thesis, um, once Nisman sort of is making this grand accusation against Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, is comes entirely from Brazilian MEK sources. So I think he has like seven like Iranian-Brazilian exiles who are in some way affiliated with MEK, like go on the record and be like, oh yeah, like we knew about the plot, like you know, these figures in Iran were calling these people like here in Brazil and they were, you know, arranging the whole thing. So that last one is obviously the most, the most doubtful. And um, I think it sort of speaks to the increasing desperation of that surrounds like Nisman in his last few years and last few months. And uh, why, why was Nisman so desperate? Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, Stuoso's firing and um, Nisman's personal fears that he was speaking to close friends in the days and weeks before the suicide. Yeah. So Nisman is very stressed out. His friends describe him as like very frantic in the months before Um, he's traveling all over the place. He's sending like these cryptic WhatsApp messages to, to his friends. And he is working on this indictment against Christina Fernandez de Kirchner, the, the great pink tide figure of Argentina. So what this indictment has to do with is that in, I forget the year, I think 2011, um, Argentina and Iran sign a memorandum of understanding, which would have Argentine prosecutors interview the relevant Iranian suspects in Iran. And the two countries will sort of work together to get to the truth of this. The rationale for Iran here is that these figures who include like very senior, like ex-political functionaries and stuff are under Interpol red alerts which means that if they leave Iran, any country that wants to, like, can and should arrest them. And Iran wants to get these lifted. Nisman makes the argument that, in fact, there's no intention to get to the truth behind the memorandum of understanding. And in fact, the entire point of this is just to exonerate the Iranian officials without justice ever being done. And so as he's, as he's, you know, he sort of starts working on this kind of you know, in rushed fashion. And um, a lot of it does have to do with um, Stuso is, uh, is being shuffled out of Sida in 2014. Nisman is losing like his, his guy, like his, his patron. And is very, like we know from what's been released of like his friends that have gone on the record and stuff that he's extremely fearful about losing his own job and his own career. 
On top of which, he's very fearful about once he lost Yusso and that protection, the political fallout, the like just sheer like hatred that would come down on him from like the then dominant like Kirchnerist left in Congress and stuff. And so he starts preparing this this accusation. Now, by the time Nisma, in the days before Nisman dies, um, Skuso has stopped picking up his phone calls from Nisman, um, which no doubt like ad- added greatly to you know his general feeling of panic. And the primary person pushing Nisman to present this in front of Congress is Patricia Bullrich, who um, is a far right politician, but who is like still like the mainstream right wing candidate in the first round of the elections that just happened. Who's like just extraordinarily fail. Like I, I encourage anyone, like if you're a Spanish speaker and you like want to, you know, get a, get a measure of Patricia Bullrich, I would encourage you to look like, look up her um, Rosh Hashanah greetings video that she filmed from an RV driving across Tucumán province or um, <laughs> her campaign ad for building um, Dr. Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner Memorial Prison. Esta cárcel va a ser diferente a todo lo que tenemos hasta ahora con inhibidores de señal telefónica, sin celulares, vigilancia individualizada, una guardia incorruptible y tolerancia cero. El futuro es con los delincuentes y corruptos presos de verdad. Es ahora y es para siempre. So Nisman is already like, his, the people supporting him are like the crazy edge of the right wing already, from where he had like this all-powerful Skuso figure previously. Yeah, and um, I thought it was incredibly weird that uh Stuso happened to flee Argentina after being questioned uh following Nisman's suicide he fled to America and he, has he returned in that time he, he has returned and and that gets that gets into that gets even weirder but um yeah so Stuso, immediately after Nisman's death Stuso leaves Argentina he goes to an undisclosed location in the US um I think he said in some interview that it was somewhere in in California I don't know, but there's a there's a rift between Argentina and the U.S. because Argentina wants to question Stuso and or charge him, and the U- the Obama administration totally stonewalls any like Argentine requests about this. And you know ar- this gets like the U.S. denounced before the UN by like the Argentine um, you know relevant representatives there, and all sorts of things like that. In 2016, after Mauricio Macri, the like sort of hard right neoliberal candidate, wins the elections. Duso does return to Argentina, and his life since then is sort of characterized by these, like, very rare but very, like, weird media appearances he makes, like, once or twice a year, where he'll say stuff like, you know, oh, there were people affiliated with the Kirchners, like, tracking me before Nisman died, and, like, they threatened the lives of me and my daughters. I I fled Argentina in, in in fear of my life, which is, like, Overall, the Kirchners, who's like, you know, machine left wing politicians, who's like networks are like in activist movements and in the unions and in like local political machines. You know, I I don't really this doesn't seem very credible. In fact, for like spy stuff, they relied on Stuso for years, um, Mm -hmm. which was because he was the guy you went to for that. But yeah, he says that he declares he testifies a bunch of times in the in the Nisman case. And he keeps wanting to testify more times. Like he keeps asking to be allowed to testify again. Um, the most recently I think was like either last or this year. Um, and he basically is like, yeah, like Christina Kirchner assassinated Nisman. 
And like, it's the whole, you know, Nisman was right. It's all, all a big conspiracy to cover up Iran's guilt in the attacks. I would encourage, again, any Spanish speakers to watch, um, like, there are some, like, floating around clips from Stusa's interviews, both on Argentine TV and for this very weird doc- Netflix documentary series, which I would encourage people to watch because he's, like, very smug, very cryptic. He keeps doing these, like, huge, broad, like, Cheshire Cat grins. Um, and, like, you know, just dancing around, like, I know more than I'm letting on, you know. In terms of what else Stuso does, um, he founds a consulting company, as all intelligence, ex-intelligence officials are wont to do, um, which is a com- combination security and nutrition consulting firm because his wife is a nutritionist. And he also makes odd media appearances. Um, he gets offered, because of that Netflix documentary, Netflix offers him the position of an advisor on that show, Fauda, like the, the like, Mossad propaganda. Oh, yeah, like, it- the Homeland type show. Yeah. Um, which I could find nothing on whether or not he accepted or he accepted that offer or not, but he did get it. You go to great lengths in your series about sort of explaining that, um, you know, for the same reasons why it's very unlikely that Hezbollah or Iran did this, um, why it's very unlikely that like, this is a false flag attack by Israel or the U S like, again, like why, why would they need to, like Argentina just isn't on many Americans' minds at all. Why would they do it there, et cetera? But could you talk a little bit about um, why the U.S. is so interested in this and sort of the uh, the U.S.'s interest in the uh, tri-border region? Yeah, so the first thing is um, what I personally believe about this is that this was not done as a false flag. And that could be like, you know, sort of my, you know, arguing too much with Sean McCarthy, like anti-conspiracy biases. But um, but it, it, it did become a fault. It was a retroactive false flag. So in other words, the people who did this created a fantastic opportunity for someone much smarter than them, Jaime Scuso, to sort of form this very beneficial relationship with the U.S. and Israeli intelligence agencies. But yeah, so the argument, the, the argument around... Um, the argument around Hezbollah, Paraguay, you know, sort of goes back to this whole discourse, which of which Stuso is the, really the father after the 1992 Israeli embassy bombing, about how um, in the tri-border area, which is like basically where the borders of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay meet, it's like not a, you know, it's like a rural sort of swampy place. Iguazu Falls are there, I guess, if you think that's cool. But there are a lot of there are a lot of like Lebanese and Syrian um, immigrants there. There are in Argentina and South America in general. And Stusa sort of starts making the case that these people are like a that Hezbollah is like somewhere embedded here. And because this is sort of like a you know anarchic like cross border region, which like no one you know really has under their firm control, that like you know all kinds of gun runners and terrorists and whatnot are moving there. And in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, Stuso even attempts to sell to the U.S. that um, bin Laden is hiding in the in Paraguay, um, which not even the Bush administration takes that bit. But it's difficult, you know, it's difficult to sort of go. I, I personally don't like a lot of like left wing explanations for like why the U.S. cares so much about this region, just because they're sort of very deterministic. They're like, so, like, the second largest aquifer in the world is here and huge, huge, like, very fertile agricultural land. And, like, that's, you know, famously sort of a bit of a testing ground for, like, Monsanto and, and all these and GMOs and all these sort of, like, multinationals. And, like, lithium is there and there, there's all these resources. 
I think that's probably part of the story. I think a bigger part of the story is if you look at a map, the U.S.'s imperial satrap in Latin America is, like, first and foremost, Colombia, which is mm-hmm. all the way in the far north of the country. So if you want, like, to do stuff in the South American landmass, if you want to do stuff in the southern cone, like, Colombia doesn't really cut it. And I think this is all connected to U.S. efforts to sort of establish a presence in the tri-border region, which have been most successful concerning Paraguay, but the general like AMIA discourse, threat, like threat construction has been a huge part of legitimizing even like those bases and such that exist outside Argentina. Mm-hmm. And uh, that region has a, a lot of uh, Middle Eastern diaspora as well, right? Yeah. One of the, one of the more interesting things that you sent me was um, the story of uh, this guy this who who was um he was a spy for the cops in Argentina Jose Alberto Perez he was undercover in the Jewish community in Argentina at the time of the bombing uh or before the bombing could you talk a little bit about uh his accusations yeah so Yossi um or he called himself um Yossi when undercover this is the best like link for Argentine state actors being involved in the attack but um Basically, Perez, um, Perez's story is that he was sent undercover during democracy um, by his bosses within the federal police who were dictatorship holdovers who wanted to sort of, you know, make sure the left didn't resurge. But also um, we're interested in what we mentioned at the top of the show, which is La Planandina, and wanted sort of him to, you know, go into Jewish institutions and like, you know, find the secret plans to take over Patagonia. And Perez played this role for for some years. He visited the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires regularly. He also specifically alleges that his bosses in the federal police like had plans for the AMIA building and that he's quite certain that it was an explosion that came from within the building. And this is all strengthened by the fact that um, one of the many suspicious things that happened the day of the attack is that the federal police, who are normally like around the AMIA, like you know, as guards or whatever, are are conspicuously absent in, like, the hours, like, right before the attack. And so there's all kinds of, you know, even, even in sort of the mainstream account, there's all kinds of stuff that's, like, state actors were complicit in this, and that actually backs up the, you know, bizarre, like, Kirchner-Iran cover-up theory. But the problem with this is that, as we know from Perez, and as we know from sort of in general, the, the federal police was the preserve of, like, very right-wing, anti-Peronist, like, dictatorship holdover elements. And so if you want, like, a theory of what happened, you know, I think one possible theory of what happened is that that's very realistic, but we may never know for sure, is that um, these right-wing elements of the federal police um, were responsible for the attack and that, you know, these sort of right-wing meatheads just gave, like, the perfect chance to to Jaime Escuso to, like, you know, make it big off of this. I'd encourage people, there's actually some reporting about this in England, in English. Um, I'd encourage people to read Gareth Porter's stuff at the gray zone. The other thing, the other weird addendum to the story is that um, there's an Amazon original series made about Jose Perez called Yossi, the regretful spy, which I believe is subtitled, which narrates all of these events. And so like implicitly cast out on like, or at least says there's something more going on than the Iran thesis. But um, it got like really rave reviews in the in the right wing Jewish press, you know, reviews that were like, oh, this shows how like the Argentine state was conspired against Jews, which is like 
yes, but not the elements of the Argentine state that you're thinking of. That's very interesting. Um, so like almost 20 years or, or oh, sorry, almost 30 years after the fact now, is this still something that like people outside the Jewish community in Argentina even like talk about anymore? Or is it just sort of like in the wind, more or less? It got kicked very much back into public consciousness by um, Nisman's death, which we haven't totally talked about yet. But um, I, w- I don't want to say it's like the dominant mythology of like the Argentine right or the the defining thing. But like in the last debates, Javier Millet, the, you know, the lunatic, like libertarian TikTok psycho candidate, you know, brought up, oh, you know, they killed Nisman to to insulate himself from accusations that he's anti-democratic because he's an apologist for the dictatorship and for the generals. So it's definitely still there. And, you know, it sort of gets trotted out in the demonization of the left and of the Kirchner specifically as like, they committed the worst crime against democracy. Like they assassinated the guy who was going to expose all of their Iran plotting. And you know, I think I think that's important. I mean, my my family who are from the Jewish community were very like tuned up about Nisman when it happened. Um, and, you know, to this day are still pretty like, you know, it's still pretty big in their minds. They're like, oh, like, you know, CFK is an assassina, like she killed him. And, you know, it's all an anti-Semitic like Venezuela, Bolivia, Hezbollah, you know, all the enemies of like the West and Israel are like teamed up against Argentine Jews. But I mean, it's not the driver of like Malay's campaign. Um, mm-hmm. It's just of note that it does get tra- its deployment is sort of definitely still a feature on the Argentine right. A prominent Argentine prosecutor has been found dead in his apartment hours before he was set to testify before a congressional panel. He had been aiming to open an investigation into the country's president. Our Shasta Darlington is live from Sao Paulo, Brazil with more. And Shasta, what a shocking discovery. What are the details? Absolutely, Linda. It's a real mystery here. This is the special prosecutor, Alberto Nisman, who just last week uh, accused the president of Argentina, Cristina Kirchner, of covering up Iran's involvement in the bombing of a Jewish center 20 years ago. And now on Sunday afternoon, just hours before he was uh, going to give some testimony uh, on these allegations, they found his body blocking the bathroom door uh, with a 22 caliber gun and a shell casing next to his body. So, And um, how do most people see Nisman's death? Like, uh, you're pretty confident that it's a suicide and going off what you wrote, I am too. But how, how do people generally see this? Um, so people do generally see Nisman as having been assassinated. And this eventually, like, the timing was so strange that um, this eventually did really become hegemonic, even on the left and center left. So, you know, Alberto Fernandez, the, like, you know, very milquetoast kind of center left president at the moment, um, has said he believes Nisman was killed. Um, Christina Kirchner herself said at one point that she believed Nisman was killed. And, of course, in their version, the suspect is Jaime Escuso, who did this to you know, to pin it on the, on the art or, or, I mean, it doesn't even have to be skewed. So it could be like Iranian or Hezbollah agents, but it wasn't them. And it was, you know, someone who did it to, to make the government look bad on the right. Obviously the hegemonic narrative is this way. And the, you know, the, certainly the narrative that's more received in North America is um, Christina Kirchner did this because he was going to testify against her and, you know, blow her whole Iran scheme. There's a couple of problems with this. The biggest one is that um, Nisman's indictment of 
CSK um, turned out to be essentially a nothing burger. Like the Argentine courts ruled after his death that like, there's just like nothing of substance in this. Like this is sort of like rambling, like very hastily and sloppily constructed. Like, you know, it didn't amount to anything. And, you know, the fact that Jaime Stuso had no, had no confidence in it might probably also be a tell. Aside from that, in terms of the, the physical evidence and like the, you know, which again, I'm not an expert on, but um, an Argentine journalist, very good, um, Pablo Dugan wrote a very concise, good book called Who Killed Nisman about this, where he points out that like, however weird the suicide is, there's like absolutely no evidence that Nisman was assassinated. So we know his mental state was like very panicky and precarious. He believed he was going to lose, you know, everything he, he had. He had also had a, made a big falling out with his ex-wife and with his children, like right before he returned to Argentina to sort of from their vacation together to sort of write all this stuff up. And then also there's just like all of his apartment doors were locked from the inside. There's no evidence. There was no forensic evidence of any kind of struggle. It's true. You know, people trot out like the biggest thing people trot out is like, oh, there was no gunpowder residue on Nisman's hand, but he used like a 22, which sometimes doesn't leave that. Again, it's not it's very much not a like two shots to the back of the head situation. It's like, you know, his body was was blocking the bathroom door. Like there's there's no signs that a third party was in the apartment at all. Um, he had also told his guards, his bodyguards and um, his friends like early, early in the evening before, like, don't bother me, supposedly because he was writing up his indictment. But, you know, there's more, it certainly seems overwhelmingly more likely on the weight of evidence that, that Nisman did, in fact, kill himself. Um, he had a motive and um, there's like no real reason to believe otherwise other than the timing. Yeah. And you'd figure if it were the other way, um, someone could at least present like something, some strand of evidence not just, you know, the absence of evidence with the gunpowder residue hypothesis. Oh, um, the other thing I should mention here is that um, a few days before the before his his death, Nisman asked to borrow that he didn't own it. He didn't own the handgun that he used to kill himself. He requested to borrow it from his uh, his aforementioned IT guy, Diego Lagarmarcino, who like is like, you don't know how to use a gun. Like, what the fuck do you want with this? And Nisman's <laughs> like, you know, oh, like I need to protect my daughters or, or some shit. So again, this is the gun. This is without doubt the weapon that killed him. And, you know, he had asked to borrow it. That shows, you know, again, that makes it, you know, the suicide narrative quite plausible. Yeah. Your characterization of Nisman, all said and done, um, not that he was like this guy playing at the highest echelons of like international power or this like wily asset of american or israeli intelligence but just like sort of like a skeezy weird guy who like may have gotten in over his head with a few things i did think it was weird that like with his uh american bank account that no one knew about until after his death that there apparently you said there were large deposits that came from an unknown source but even then it's just like you know, that doesn't necessarily mean he was on the payroll of Mossad or the CIA for that matter. I I thought that thing that you put in about his association with that um, scumbag, uh, like model agency guy was uh, sort of more pertinent than anything. Yeah. Um. So this is something that, to my knowledge, has only been written about in, in Spanish, which is um, Nisman's sort of big hobby after his divorce was fucking much younger women. 
um, who he would like aggressively, again, there's sort of a weird, there's sort of a, you know, hints that he had some kind of like, there was something like sexually pathological, you know, in his life, like with the obscene phone call incident. But he would like show pictures of himself with these much younger women in bed in Cancun or in Miami to his friends really aggressively. They would be like, like, you know, grossed out, like, you know, as, as, you know, any 50 year old would be if their 50 year old friend tried to show them this. Like, that's why, an amazing like, move to do just as yeah. like a middle aged man with kids. <laughs> like, look, yeah. I'm having sex. And the way Nisman was meeting these women was through a guy he knew named Leandro Santos, who, um, ran a model agency, as you said, um, but was also wanted in Uruguay, I think still is, for um, prostitution of minors, and who recently, or not recently, in 2021 was charged for making violent threats against one of the girls that that Nisman had been with to be like, you know, don't mention me, Leandro Santos, in your, in your testimony. So, you know, was Nisman like, you know, buying high-class prostitutes was he just you know kind of scummy and getting this creepy friend to like hook him up with like you know because santos probably was a pimp but he you know did run a legitimate modeling agency i don't think it's really that important i wouldn't want to i think the characterization to come away with nisman from this is like yeah you can characterize him as like a you know sexual deviant and, and a fiend but the one that i think is just like more germane is just like yeah he was like a playboy he like he like liked fucking and like showing, you know, and like telling people he fucked and was rich. Like, you know, this sort of shows his kind of his kind of mind and like he was not like playing at the highest levels. The only other thing I will mention about that, about Nisman, though, that may contradict that is that um, the only party who received a copy of the indictment prior to his death was the U.S. Embassy in Buenos Aires, which, again, like with his American bank account is like, OK, yeah, he was in he was obviously like in very deep with like you know, a lot of very like high level international machinations, but like, does that prove that he himself was like more than sort of, you know, a tool or like a, you know, an employee of greater forces? I don't really think so. Yeah. So just to wrap it up, what was the uh, fallout after Niesman's death? Uh, what were the consequences for Kirchner? And uh, where does that leave us today? So after Niesman's death, as I mentioned, there was this huge political firestorm that was like CFK killed him. Mauricio Macri, like one of the least charismatic men in history, wins the Argentine presidency from the right, right after Niesman's death. And in that case, probably it did have something to do politically. And it just like really intensifies the like firestorms and divides in Argentine society that are like. CFK is like this demon, like, you know, really like Satan incarnate, like, you know, I have family members who, who feel like hostile to CFK really beyond ideology, I would say, who are like, you know, she's a criminal, she's a murderer, and it gets sort of used for that. I would say it also, it also does resurrect the, the Hezbollah Latin America narrative more broadly, not that it ever went away, but like, um, there's a, there's certainly like a crop, a, a big like bloom in think tank reports about like that time Amia blew up a yeah that time Iran blew up a synagogue in Argentina and what it says about like Iran could be in Venezuela or Hezbollah is in you know Hezbollah is running drug trafficking networks and Hezbollah is like going to cross the U.S. Mexican border and Hezbollah is in Brazil and it all refers back to the central incident and the fact that Nisman died you know in admittedly like a very strange manner or at least at a, with very strange timing like has really 
really did help to kick that into overdrive and and still does sort of come up in the wake of um in the wake of Nisman's death obviously Hymas Yuso is no longer at Sida um Sida's also abolished um and replaced with a new intelligence agency and they purge all the top leadership but again like a lot of the guys in it are still and the new um the AFI the new intelligence agency are still the same people and more to the point like I think what Stuso's career reveals is that like Stuso worked with presidents across the political spectrum in Argentina and his way of, you know, making himself useful was he would he would, you know, show up on inauguration day and say, you know, Aldo Styles at your service. And then he would give, you know, he would help with his network in the judiciary and in, in different state organs to sort of, you know, smooth things out for people. The Kirchners were also very much indulged do so in this and used him for this, especially Christina's husband and predecessor, Nestor Kirchner. And so this is the way that, you know, I think intelligence functions in Argentina um, and maybe, you know, in, in the third world or in Latin America more broadly is like, so, I mean, in the U.S. it's also the case, like politicians rely on these sorts of weird operators for like short-term interests. And there are, you know, much bigger things going on. These people are working for larger forces and for themselves and don't really have the the, the national interest at heart. And I think that um, whoever wins tomorrow, that's something to keep in mind. But with reference to the elections, I would also just mention um, Argentina, again, there's sort of like, it's not well known. The Peronism Nazi thing colors people's view about it a lot. But Argentina has a very like sovereigntist left wing political tradition. It's not like Colombia where like Gustavo Petro is like literally like David fighting Goliath. Like, and so to deconstruct that, just these omnipresent sort of threat narratives and so forth have been put forward. Now, I don't think if Malay wins tomorrow, it's the end of, it's the end of that tradition, you know, that great tradition in Argentine history. But um, I guess the, the real takeaway from AMI is like, you know, sort of the narrative subversion against Latin American sovereignty and for U.S. imperialism in Latin America, rather than the links to Iran, to the Middle East, which are like, it's less clear if these are just a tool to do stuff in Latin America, or if these are like, there was really something going on with these because they haven't panned out into literally anything. And is there anything more you'd like to add before we wrap up? Oh, um, I've told my friend Miroslav I would do this. Um, we do bi-weekly Twitter spaces called um, Regime Radio. That may become a podcast at some point. Come check those out. Um, we're doing one next week with our buddy MJB about Palestine that um, I'm looking forward to a lot. All right. Well, we'll we will have links in the description uh, that can guide you guide people to that uh, your uh, Substack and your Twitter. Uh, thank you so much, Steph. Thanks. This was a really good. I'm really glad to have gone sort of told this story in this format. I think it lends itself much better. No, no, I'm really happy we did this. The only thing, oh, the other thing I would mention is that um, my Amia series is not done yet. I'm just sort of juggling a lot. So um, I do intend to sort of um, explain a bunch of other things like the Syria theory, which we didn't manage to get to, or just like a fuller biography of Kaimis Yuso. So those will come at some point if people are interested, just, you know, probably not in like the next few weeks. All right. Uh, Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks.